0: KISU's Idaho Falls City Club program is underwritten by the Idaho Humanities Council. Inspiring a more literate, tolerant, and intellectually inquisitive Idaho citizenry. Better able to embrace life's possibilities. More online at idahohumanities.org.
1: The time is 7 o'clock. Next on FM 91, it's the City Club of Idaho Falls. And now City Club moderator, Dr. David Adler. When we think about Abraham Lincoln in this state, We know that there is one great source to turn to, and that is David Leroy, who has traveled this state, the length and breadth of this state, for years talking about his favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. Of course, Dave Leroy is no stranger to anybody here. A long and loyal public servant here in the state of Idaho. Uh, He served as the 28th Attorney General of Idaho from 1979 to 1983. He followed that by serving as the 36th Lieutenant Governor from from 83 to 87. In 86, he sought the governorship and he lost a very, very close race uh, to a man named Cecil Andrus. And that race was so close, some of you may remember, that I think both sides posted sentries at the county courthouses throughout the night. That's how much trust they had toward each other. Uh, Dave Leroy then went on to serve in a very important post as as the U.S. negotiator on nuclear waste, an appointment by President George H.W. Bush. And he's been around the state for many years talking about Abraham Lincoln. When you talk about an aficionado of Abraham Lincoln, you don't find anybody who is more intensely involved in the history and life of Abraham Lincoln. This very fall, the Idaho Historical Society is going to open a marvelous exhibit on Abraham Lincoln. And that exhibit, the 1,000 books, the marvelous pictures and photos and portraits and sculptures and other uh, memorabilia from Abraham Lincoln's life and career are the wonderful gift of Dave and Nancy Leroy, an incredible donation to the state of Idaho. Uh, I've been uh, in a wonderful position over the last year of having been able to meet with Dave to talk about Lincoln. We've been on a few panels together, and I always learn a great deal when Dave Leroy speaks. I don't think there's a better person to have at this podium to talk about Lincoln than Dave Leroy, won't you agree?
0: Dave, President Mark, members of the board, Ed Morone of the Humanities Council, my friend Lyndon Bateman, state representative, former legislators, uh, Anne Rydals, John Hansen, members of the club. I once gave a speech in Washington, D.C. where it was my obligation to attempt to enthuse the crowd after a speech by Alexander Haig, who was Secretary of State and the Marine Band On that occasion, I felt not so much pressure as I do tonight, following the peppy duo that you have just heard. (laughs) I congratulate you on such enthusiastic leadership and such members, and it will be my honor to engage in a bit of civil discourse with you tonight, although I trust that I may be a bit of a letdown, as Dave has foreshadowed, if you're looking for either blood on the floor or bars and brothels. (laughs) Nevertheless, I do recall distinctly the first speech which I gave to Idaho Falls. It was indeed, as I sought the attorney generalship in 1978, it was indeed uh, courtesy of invitation and sponsorship of my friend, your member, Tim Hopkins. He suggested that I come to this side of the state, present present my credentials, and knew that a good way to break in any young prosecutor trying to be ambitious was to take them to the senior citizens center (laughs) and so I stood before that group having some civil discourse I tried to repeat my name Dave Leroy candidate for attorney general five or six times and then at the conclusion to lock in the deal I went down the table shaking hands with the gentlemen and the beautific gray-haired ladies who remained behind. Uh, As I did that process, uh, I distinctly remember, and Tim was at my left elbow uh, saying, hi, I'm Dave Leroy, and again, thanks for your vote. Hello, I'm Dave Leroy from Boise, and I sure appreciate your vote. And about the fourth little lady, diminutive, ring of gray hair, a sparkler in her eye, as I began to talk, she interrupted me. And she said, you don't have to tell me who you are. I know you. I will always be a political supporter of yours. You have my vote, Senator Sims. (laughs) And as long as my discourse is delve just a touch into the area of politics. Sheila Olson, one of my, uh, Sheila where are you? Sheila you, uh, you sponsored me when no others would and I'm so grateful for that. Sheila asked me as we chatted before the dinner to tell one of her favorite Dave Leroy political stories it uh, deals with. And my friend former senator Larry Craig who I was pleased to see made a, a triumphant return to the podium on this campus uh, just a bit ago. Uh, Larry and I were campaigning, I think I was running for lieutenant governor in 1982. We were in a little town called Horseshoe Bend, about halfway between uh, Boise and uh, North Idaho. It's a little sleepy town where the world has passed it by once the highway did. And we had one of those campaign buses with the big overhead audio, uh, audio systems that were playing John Phillips Sousa marching music with a big beat and a brass band. As we pulled into the little towns to try to whip up enthusiasm, as we stopped, people poured out of the, the, mo- the motorhome to pass out literature. We met our prearranged uh, party and, and uh, did whatever was arranged in the town that day. I don't recall what modest event we had in the modest sized town of Horseshoe Bend, but we might have been a few minutes early. We pulled into town into the little square that uh, constitutes the center of the place, and our our reception committee was not there. And so we filed out, stood around a minute or two, nobody came. Uh, Finally, after about five minutes when nobody came, the RV driver had a brilliant idea. He would get back into the rig, turn on the John Phillips Sousa marching music, turn it up at full volume and drive the populace and our reception committee to see us. Uh, He did so, the music began, the beat was thunderous, and nobody came. (laughs) So after about three minutes of that, finally about 100 yards away at the far end of the square, there was a large uh, structure which appeared to be a mechanics uh, facility of some kind with one of those doors that rolls back on a large pulley system at the top. The door rolled back just enough of a crack to admit a man wearing coveralls who was staring at us and at the RV. As Larry and I stood in front, we noticed him, and he noticed us glaringly. And after about another 30 seconds, he spun on his heel, turned his backside toward us, and off of his right shoulder, slipped the strap of his coveralls. Off his left shoulder, he slipped the strap of his coveralls. He bent over at the waist and exposed his bare bottom in our direction. Larry Craig turned toward me and said, Dave, you better put him down as undecided. You know, once upon a time in America, the dinner speech and the after-dinner speech was a high art form in the great banqueting clubs, the civic associations, the debating societies of our country, all competed to hear the noble orators of the day, the dulcet tones, the forceful logic and reasoning. And the noted speakers of the day, Senator Chauncey Depew, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan, a man named James G. Blaine, were much sought after as speakers. A man named Russell Conwell, in fact, gave a speech called Acres of Diamonds thousands of times in those settings. And it is estimated that he held under the power of his voice during those early years of the 1900s over five million people in a day before amplification. Well, we're in a different era. Today and tonight, of course, uh, we compete with the NBA Finals Game 4, the opening reception at the Museum of Idaho, the guitar exhibit. And Lyndon Bateman advises me a new blockbuster movie at the Edwards Theater out by the mall, The Adventures of the Lizard People, Part (laughs) 4. And Lyndon, I don't want you leaving before I finish. When I was a boy, I read books. And growing up in Lewiston, as a fellow of junior high age, I was, within those books, always intrigued about presidents who were lawyers and lawyers who were presidents and the speeches and remarks they made. In fact, uh, when I was in the seventh grade, I had my mother drive me out to the airport as I wore my best sweater. I elbowed my way in front of the dignitaries and shook hands with John Kennedy. Who came to town to solicit votes in Lewiston and about that time I found in a magazine a coupon where for one dollar and your return self-addressed stamped envelope you could receive back in the mail a paperback book that had the greatest speeches ever given in the history of the world contained therein when I received it back, speeches of Socrates and of Plato, of Churchill and of Gandhi, but one man, an American, more than any other single person in that book, dominated the index, dominated the content. In 1913, the chancellor of Oxford University, a man named Curzon, set out to determine the three greatest speeches ever given in the history of the English language. Uh, he surveyed and he read and he in- polled others, and at the end of his analysis, he identified those three spe- speeches and that Anglo-centric institution, Oxford University, looking for remarks in the native tongue of that land, found that two of the greatest speeches had been given by the same man, an American, a lawyer, a president. Included among the list of three were the following two, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural Address of Abraham Lincoln my assigned topic tonight is Lincoln and Idaho and David Adler has uh, perceptively suggested that I work with the ties that bind and for 45 years I have been traveling the breadth and length of this land including Idaho to try to suggest to people based on demonstrated evidence that Idaho more than any other state is related to abraham lincoln now think of how outrageous that claim must be think of how angry our friends in kentucky the state of his birth or indiana the state of his youth or illinois a state that is so proud of lincoln that they even proclaim on the license plate the land of lincoln think how angry they must be and were in 2009 when they heard that Uh, In fact, it was such an unusual claim that we got not only national but international press when Idaho made that bold statement and when we put it on a bronze plaque on a statue in front of our Capitol building. Well, in demonstrating those connections, I've typically tried to put together a lawyer's case uh, talking about acts of legal significance. Lincoln signed the territorial bill. uh, Factoids of various types. Lincoln mentioned Idaho Territory in his 1863 and 64 State of the Union messages, or people. Lincoln had a neighbor named Sam Parks, a lawyer friend who was politically active, and Lincoln insisted that Sam Parks become one, one of the first justices of the Idaho Supreme Court. Many of you have heard some of those revelations in prior speeches, but what I wanted to do tonight with this dinner speech opportunity was to wonder out loud if we could link Idaho to Lincoln's four greatest speeches. What if Idahoans were there? What if an Idahoan had a role or a responsibility in the Gettysburg Address, or the second inaugural, or his farewell even to his neighbors in Springfield or his Cooper Union address, the speech that sprung him to the presidency. What if Idahoans were there? What if Idahoans or would be Idahoans had something to do with those speeches? What if those speeches themselves were among the ties that bind? The speech Cooper Union Institute, February 27, 1860. The scene, a basement auditorium in New York City, in lower Manhattan. 1,500 people crammed into the bowl of the bottom of a large brick building. An auditorium that's not well designed for speaking because it has large pillars that block the view and block the sound, a low ceiling. A dozen distinguished men seated on a platform uh, like this, a tall speaker, too tall, ungainly, a high-pitched voice, awkward movements, a clumsy new suit of clothes and new shoes that pinched his toes. The importance of the speech? The country was in danger of splitting apart. The issue of the extension of slavery into the Western states was and had been for the last two years, putting the prairies afire. You see, we tend to think about the Civil War as being between the North and the South, but instead, actually, it was about the West and the rest. The question of, shall we extend slavery into the West, is what ignited the Civil War. And Abraham Lincoln, an obscure country politician from Illinois, had come to national prominence two years earlier when he debated Stephen Douglas, Douglas saying that the people themselves in those territories should popularly decide whether they have slavery, and Lincoln insisting that the Founding Fathers and the Constitution and the morality of slavery should augur against such extension. The words that Lincoln offered were divided into three sections. A historical section where he talked about what the Founding Fathers intended. Then appeal to the Southerners, don't, don't split this country apart. And finally, a message to Northern hearers, respect the Constitution. Acknowledge that slavery is built in. And the words, the words were these. This is all Republicans ask in relation to slavery. As those fathers marked it, so let us mark it again as an evil not to be extended. And the closing words, let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end do our duty as we understand it. The reaction of the crowd, well, at the outset, at the beginning of the delivery, it was very unfavorable. You see, Lincoln was an odd-looking duck, ill-designed to impress New York society and the opinion leaders of the day who were there, the 12 men on the stage. And his high-pitched voice was poorly suited, His western twang was odd indeed. But that afternoon at the hotel before he came to Cooper Union, he had met a friend of his named Mason Brayman, a lawyer from Springfield, a railroad lawyer who hired him in several cases. And he'd asked Brayman to do this. He said, Brayman, as I begin to speak, would you stand at the back of the auditorium? And if I cannot be heard, if I'm not successfully projecting, will you put your hat On top of your cane and raise it above your head as a signal. So it is reported at the outset that as Lincoln began to speak he was losing the crowd. He was nervous, he did not project, his high-pitched voice was doing a very poor job of enunciating his words or getting to the back of the auditorium. His odd, odd, odd accent was displeasing to the New York ear. In fact, one of Lincoln's friendly reporters, who was seated in the front row, wrote in his notes at that time, still preserved, oh, oh, my dear fellow, this will not do. So after Lincoln, in his accent, said the words, Mr. Chairman, and began to bumble along, As the crowd turned against him, there came a point, a point in the speech, when suddenly he began to project toward the back of the room. His voice came alive, his eyes were animated, his message began to make sense, his voice was modulated, and he began to win the crowd and compel the crowd and with his logic and with his arguments and his three parts to the speech. By the end of it, all 1,500 of those opinion leaders, including the reporter in the front row, leapt to their feet and the reporter himself said why he's the greatest man since St. Paul. The Idaho connection? Mason Bremen, arguably was the man who made that speech work. It was that speech that made Lincoln president for not only the reaction of those opinion leaders in the room was significant. Within two weeks 150,000 copies of Lincoln's remarks were printed and available in pamphlet form up and down the breadth of the East Coast. A copy of that pamphlet is here in the front table tonight. It was that speech that brought Lincoln to national attention. It was that argument that compelled him to the presidential nomination and it was that nomination that made Lincoln president. And the man in the back of the room, Mason Braman, the man who arguably made Lincoln president, became governor of Idaho in 1876 by appointment of General U.S. Grant, now president. An Idahoan was present at that speech. How about the farewell address? Not something of national or international import, though studied today. In February of 1861, Abraham Lincoln had been elected president of the United States, facing a divided country in the South, pulling away, pulling apart, states seceding, prospects for anything positive of his presidency, bleak indeed. He had served one term in Congress, two years in Washington, D.C., and with that little experience was now, for the first time in many, many years, leaving his home, Springfield, not possibly to return. The scene was the great Western Railroad Depot, A brick from that depot was on the front table here tonight. On Monroe and 10th Streets in Springfield, where it still stands, it was a dark, gloomy morning. A light rain was falling. The importance of these remarks would be simply a communication between Lincoln and his neighbors, who had watched him grow into the figure he had become, cheered him, cried with him observed his difficulties and problems. The words were these. My friends, no one not in my situation can appreciate my feeling of sadness at this parting. To this place and the kindness of these people, I owe everything. Here I have lived a quarter of a century and I have passed from a young to an old man. Here my children have been born and one is buried. I now leave, not knowing when or whether ever I may return with a task before me greater than that which faced Washington. And closing with these words, he said, to his care commending you, as I hope in your prayers you will commend me I bid you an affectionate farewell. The reaction? Well, according to some of the neighbors, there was scarcely a dry eye in the crowd. Lincoln himself choked up. There was little national attention to the speech, but Lincoln had some sense that it might be valued one day, and as the train began to pull away, started writing down on a piece of paper what he believed he had said turning the task over to one of his secretaries subsequently. If you Google tonight Abraham Lincoln online, you will find in the description of this event the following words, a Springfield teenager, named for the president-elect, listened intently to the speech. According to his brother, Fred, Lincoln Dubois stood in the middle of the track, close against the bumper of the car on the platform of which Mr. Lincoln was standing. My brother said that he never forgot Lincoln's sorrowful face as he bade all of them farewell. The Dubois family, although some Idahoans prefer to pronounce it Dubois, (laughs) lived just across 8th Street from Lincoln Jesse DuBois was the Illinois State Auditor, had been nominated for that office by Lincoln at one of the Republican conventions in Illinois, and they were close political and friendly allies. Particularly Fred DuBois, the boy who was attributed to the comment, was about the age of the Lincoln children, and Rompton played with them and with Lincoln as a surrogate father, and there indeed is truth the anecdote that Fred Dubois and the Lincoln boys from time to time would tie a string from a tree or a fence post, pull it taut as Lincoln came home walking from the office, knock Lincoln's hat off, scatter his paper, and the anecdotal history is that Lincoln would grab the boys, would run, would take them back downtown after romping with them and buy them nuts and candy. The Idaho connection. In 1880, Jesse Dubois, named for his father, became the physician at Fort Hall of the Bannock Indian tribe. With him came his brother Fred. By 1882, Fred Dubois was appointed United States Marshal for the Territory of Idaho. And in 1886, he was elected the first of two terms to the United States Congress as the delegate the Territory of Idaho the little boy who romped with Lincoln, held those political offices, and then did one more thing, extending Lincoln's arm 25 years after the assassination, because Fred Dubois, Lincoln's neighbor who heard the farewell speech more than any other man, convinced the Congress and the President to turn Idaho Territory into Idaho State in 1890. The speech, the Gettysburg Address, The scene, the battlefield of July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, now some months later, November 19th, 1863, being converted first to a state and then to a national cemetery. The site was on the high ground, a mile east of the center of a small burg named Gettysburg. After a parade up Baltimore Road, Some 15,000 people assembled shortly after noon to hear the great orator of the day, Edward Everett, speak for two and a half hours. Seated on a platform with six governors, a number of other dignitaries, the crowd awaited remarks from the 16th president of the United States. The importance of these remarks, it had been a bloody war. Hundreds of thousands of people killed and maimed Capture. The president himself was sufficiently unpopular that it appeared highly likely that he would not be reelected The next year, A South's foray into the North, into Pennsylvania, had been rebuffed, but had it succeeded, it's entirely likely that peace talks would have ensued and settled the war otherwise. Lincoln had, months earlier, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, but the question of the day was, What is the meaning of these deaths? What is the meaning of this war? Must we, should we, go on? You know the words, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. He told the crowd, now we are engaged in a great civil war. And then he asked them that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. The reaction? Well, it was considerably varied. The London Times said this, quote, poor President Lincoln, anything more dull and commonplace would not be easy to produce. The Chicago Times, every American must tingle with shame as he reads these silly, flat, dishwatery utterances. But the Springfield American, Lincoln's hometown paper, quote, his little speech is a perfect gem, tasteful, and elegant in every word and comma. And Edward Everett, the principal orator of the day, was sufficiently moved by Lincoln's two minutes to write the president a letter saying, I should have been happy if I, in two hours, had captured the central idea of the event, as you did in two minutes. The Idaho connection. There was a man in Illinois, a lawyer, named Ward Hill Lamont. His practice was in Danville over toward the Indiana Line. But when Lincoln rode the Eighth Circuit, he often allied and always met the local lawyers. Lamont was a huge bulk of a man, 6'4", 230 or 40 pounds, could look Lincoln eye to eye, but of course was much broader. But they had similar senses of humor. Lamont was a mirthful man, Lincoln much drawn to him. They, over time, became best friends, practiced and associated with cases. And when Lincoln went to Washington, he asked one Illinois lawyer to close his practice and come with him, Ward Hill Lamont, his best friend. He asked Lamont to accept the responsibility of being his personal bodyguard, a dangerous job in dangerous times, but he knew he could trust Lamont And so when the the train pulled out from Springfield, Lamont was on it, listening to the remarks. And when they arrived in Washington, Lincoln appointed Ward Hill Lamont to the post of marshal of the District of Columbia, giving him an official title and an official duty. But Lamont took his job so seriously that he was not only officious about it, He, from time to time, would sleep across the doorway of the president's bedroom in the upstairs of the White House just to make sure that no intruder passed to threaten the president that night. Lamont was not in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865, when Lincoln was shot. Instead, he was in Richmond, the Confederate capital, overseeing the surrender of that city And as you can imagine, given his closeness to Lincoln, given his task for Lincoln, was absolutely disconsolate when Lincoln was assassinated. In fact, he returned to the capital city. He resigned his post as Marshal of the District of Columbia. And as soon as he could gather his thoughts and had participated in the basic services related to Lincoln, Ward Hill Lamon approached the new president, Andrew Johnson. You see, Lamont had been involved in the close business and the important understandings with the president about what jobs, what tasks, what places were worthy and valuable. And when Ward Hill Lamont, the president's best friend, given the knowledge of the inner workings of the White House, wanted a new job. He approached Andrew Johnson for one post and one post only. He asked to be appointed to the post of Governor of Idaho Territory. He was not appointed. And finally, the second inaugural address. March 4th, 1865 was a Saturday. It was a dreary Saturday in Washington, D.C. It had been raining In a hard downpour for two days, the mud was ankle deep in all of the major thoroughfares. On the east face of the United States Capitol building, some 30 to 40,000 people were assembling and for the first time, were large number of black faces in the crowd. The president had been at the Capitol building since early in the morning, signing legislation passed by the Congress on its last night The Vice President took his oath of office in the Senate in an an inebriated condition to the embarrassment of all and to the embarrassment of the President. A military parade could be heard approaching as the clock moved toward noon with bands and the clank of military hardware. And finally, all is assembled in front of the east face in a light drizzle. President of the United States is escorted out onto a platform and is introduced. And suddenly, the sun breaks out of the cloud. The President's face is illuminated by a bright beam of light, and he stands before them to give a speech of some considerable importance. Behind him on the platform are the dignitaries assembled of the United States Congress and another man, John Wilkes Booth. President rose, put on his spectacles, and with the war nearly won, the 13th Amendment passed. The hard work of a second term ahead tried to paint a picture for the country of what he would do. He said, at this second appearing, to take the oath of the presidential office, there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war will speedily pass away. And he closed with these words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work that we are in, the Idaho connection. The Representative from Idaho Territory, William Wallace, was standing behind Lincoln on the steps, not too far from Booth, and heard those words. In assessing the reaction to that speech, Lincoln said to Noah Brooks, the same reporter that was there for the Cooper Union speech, Did you notice that sunburst? It made my heart skip. The audience was enthusiastic or gave faint applause, depending on which reporter was listening. At certain points, it did have a cheer or two. The Richmond newspapers were not favorably impressed by the speech. In fact, the Rich- Richmond Examiner said it sounded like the tale of some old sermon. The New York Evening Post gave it excessive praise. It said it had, quote, the merit of brevity. <laughs> the New York Times, a little more expansive, extreme simplicity, calmness, modesty. And the Cincinnati Gazette called it a sensible, quaint brief document expressing religious feeling and patriotic sentiments. But William Wallace, the delegate from Idaho Territory, the former governor of Idaho Territory, who heard that speech, thought it a fine one indeed. And just six weeks later, William Wallace, governor of Idaho Territory, was in the White House on the afternoon of April 14, 1865, to see Lincoln about filling a vacancy on the Idaho Supreme Court. They talked for a moment or two, and Lincoln told Wallace, quote, Old Idaho, because he called Wallace by that name ever since their battles to create the territory. He said, Old Idaho, come back on Monday, and you shall have the appointment as you wish it. And then he came around the desk, clapped Wallace on the shoulder and said, how would you and Mrs. Wallace like to go to Ford's Theater with us tonight? Mary and I are going to see a play called Our American Cousin. It's idle to speculate whether the presence in the box that night of the former governor of Idaho Territory might have somehow interrupted history. But at least now you know when you hear someone claim that Idaho more than any other state is related to Abraham Lincoln, that Idaho was at the back of the auditorium, that Idaho was in the crowd, that Idaho in the form of Ward Hill Le was at the podium in Gettysburg, introducing Abraham Lincoln, and that Idaho, by its governor and territorial representative, was standing with Lincoln as he delivered the second inaugural address. At the greatest speeches in American history, Idaho was there, and tonight you've been there. These noble words and noble sentiments, I suggest, mean that Idaho more than any other state is related to Abraham Lincoln. They are indeed the ties that bind. Thank you.
1: (laughs) David, uh, thank you so much for those eloquent, insightful remarks. And I think you said at the outset that you were a lawyer. You were going to set out to prove your case. Jurors, did he prove his case? Did he make the case? A unanimous verdict, I suggest. A unanimous verdict. We have some wonderful questions here for you uh, from a very uh, intrigued audience. Let's start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your family's relationship <laughs> to Mary Todd Lincoln?
0: Uh-oh, uh-uh. well, uh Well, it's just a little too trite uh, that my family heritage allegedly uh, relates me to Abraham Lincoln, not Mary Todd. Uh, my great-great-great-great-grandmother uh, was a Hanks and a sister of Nancy Hanks, uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, mother. So. Uh, that's about all I know but uh, I do have some genealogy that makes that connection and uh, so I I can't claim the insanity of Mary Todd but I'll take the lineage of Lincoln
1: (laughs) now as a Lincoln scholar you have enthralled your audience here we have several questions asking you about your methods of engaging in this intensive research about Lincoln and how long did all this take how many decades have you been engaged in this research?
0: Well, literally about 45 years, uh, when Tim Hopkins brought me to town to talk to the Senior Citizen Center, I also realized that as a a local uh, public official trying to win favor at Lincoln Day banquets all over the state, I needed to have something to say. And so I began to research uh, what remarks might be appropriate, and uh, I was astounded to find that Lincoln had created Idaho Territory, that he sent 15 of his best friends out here, That he mentioned this to Congress, all of these things that I talk about and, and then more. Uh, so I began to incorporate those into speeches and uh, uh, when I left public service, I began to acquire uh, Lincoln items of memorabilia like uh, the ones here in front uh, tonight and uh, you, you sort of claw your way into this by looking at uh, things that scholars have done before and then you find occasionally an obscure reference in a newspaper. Uh, and actually online now makes it uh, somewhat easier, at least as to modern materials, to research and it never has been before. I wrote a book called Mr. Lincoln's Book, which uh, details the publication of the Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, in 1860. Uh, the Illinois state historian, a man named Harry Pratt in 1954, uh, knew that Lincoln had gotten 100 copies of that book as his role from the publisher, and uh, Pratt wanted to determine how many of those uh, books had been inscribed by Lincoln to his friends. Using uh, then modern techniques in the 1950s, sitting at the center of the Lincoln world in Springfield, he was able to find 18 of those books that Lincoln had literally uh, inscribed to somebody and signed his name Uh, using modern techniques, including the internet, auction records, uh, contacts with uh, book dealers all over the country. Uh, when I wrote mine, I did an appendix that updated that list and instead of 18 such books, I found 42. It's literally possible now to research Lincoln more effectively than it was at any time, including those times when Lincoln was alive.
1: Thank you. Now, many in this room have seen uh, Daniel Day-Lewis play Abraham Lincoln. We would like to know about <laughs> your impressions of Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln.
0: Good. Uh, I. Uh, went to the movie, I've seen it several times. I wanted, of course, to give it an 11 on the 10 scale. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't able to get there, but I did give it an 8.5. And if you go home tonight and Google Lincoln movie, Leroy Review, uh, you'll find my my comments at length. As to Daniel Day-Lewis, I thought he was spectacular, but I did have one defect uh, that I noted. Uh, From my point of view, he was two inches too short. Uh, Lincoln literally towered over his peers and Day-Lewis adopted uh, as you know the voice and the manner and I thought was extremely compelling you saw and heard Abraham Lincoln when you uh, saw the movie not an actor trying to beat Abraham Lincoln but uh, as to his physical posture he he did a little bit of a a hunch over I guess to physically explain why he wasn't towering over those people Uh, I would have preferred elevator shoes plus two inches (laughs)
1: <laughs> we'll write that down. Now let me ask you to put on, uh, on a, a hat in which allows you to gaze into your crystal ball. If Lincoln were here today, how might he solve our nation's problem with respect to hyperpartisanship and the incivility that dominates so much discussion and occasionally uh, crops up in the editorial pages of the Post Register? I'm just guessing. <laughs>
0: Uh, Luckily, I haven't read the Post Register articles here lately, uh, so I'm not able to intrude into that. Uh, Lincoln was awash in in civility. The ultimate dignity, uh, the ultimate indignity, uh, was uh, states seceding from the Union even in advance of him taking office, even in advance of him adopting any policy, contrary to what uh, he was promising to do. Uh, And, uh, as Lincoln said, the war came. Uh, His best PR skills, his best diplomacy, was not able in that era to bridge all of the uh, incivility that was awash and he certainly couldn't put a a foot on both sides of of that chasm and pull it back together. Uh, I think Lincoln would attempt to utilize his personality, uh, his ability to listen, his ability to reason, his ability to use humor. Uh, I think that uh, his collegiality uh, with trusted, uh, trusted people who were then themselves, as Seward was in the movie, sent out to accept uh, roles and missions uh, to try to bridge gaps, uh, would be useful today. Uh, there's no easy answer to incivility or the extreme polarization of politics, uh, other than uh, occasionally a war, and hopefully we're not uh, headed that direction, uh, but good manners, good ideas, and good dialogue, all of which uh, were legion with Lincoln.
1: Back to familial relationships for a moment. Was your distant relative, Mary Todd Lincoln,
0: really crazy? (laughs) Mary Todd uh, suffered certainly from some situational depression uh, that was even more acute than Lincoln's reported situational depression. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln in the 1870s was actually adjudicated uh, an appropriate candidate for an insane asylum uh, by virtue of the petition of her husband, uh, or her son, Robert Todd Lincoln, uh, who deemed her unable to uh, uh, not be a danger to herself or others, uh, even though she was living with other relatives at the time. Uh, She certainly had her excesses, uh, but uh, again, uh, in terms of of presentism, that is taking our frame of reference and projecting it uh, backward, uh, to assume that we know everything about those times and those people and those diagnoses, uh, It's dangerous to categorize her exactly, but she certainly was detached from reality uh, upon some occasions and was adjudicated thusly. Your
1: own marvelous collection of books about Lincoln, some 1,000 or so that you'll be donating. Uh, Which of those books would you recommend to this audience to better understand Abraham Lincoln and to enhance their own uh, understanding
0: of the 16th president? Well, one of the things I liked about Lincoln, the movie, is that it, it was not a biography from birth to death uh, of Lincoln. Instead, it focused on critical events, the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Congress, uh, a period of approximately a month. But it gave you more of a flavor, I think, of Lincoln, the man, the times, the country, uh, the demands and needs and, and perils, uh, than does a broader biography. And interestingly enough, uh, the, the book that spawned uh, the uh, movie uh, was itself uh, a, a broader book that was uh, reduced again. So I I think in looking at Lincoln, uh, it's important to have an idea of what interests you. Uh, there are literally 17,000 Lincoln books. And if you're interested in the modern day Lincoln, the Lincoln that links you to the movie, then, of course, Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin, Uh, though only five or six pages of that book deal with the actual material in the movie, uh, is an excellent treatise. But if you're interested in Lincoln the Lawyer, there are six or eight books on Lincoln the Lawyer. If uh, Lincoln the uh, Young Man and Why He Self-Educated so Successfully is interested, uh, there are books on that. But probably the easiest book to acquire and the most related to uh, our recent dose of uh, Lincoln in the movie would be Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals. Mm -hmm.
1: You you mentioned how much you admire Lincoln's uh, writing style, what a beautiful writer he was, and you quoted some of the most quotable lines in all of American history. Do you have a theory or an explanation of how Lincoln became such a beautiful writer given that that he was uh, largely self-educated. And don't say he was a beautiful writer and and an educated man because he did not attend school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he uh, he certainly didn't have the benefit of all our federal programs and guidelines. (laughs) (laughs) The the thing that's most interesting about Lincoln in his self-taught phase was that he was a deep and a slow thinker. He would pore over things. Uh, his diet was the great books in the Bible and uh, much of his phraseology or cadence comes from uh, a Shakespearean concept or a biblical concept. And I, I think it simply was a genius that he had. Uh, but that genius was refined, interestingly enough, on the Eighth Circuit where he was a trial lawyer. Uh, he would come into town with other lawyers, uh, stay for between two days and a week. He would uh, have people rushing up to him as he, as he got off his horse, presenting their cases to him. And he would have to, as a quick study, learn the cases, talk maybe a minute or two to a witness, and go try a case. And in the process of that, he also had to produce pleadings. And those legal pleadings were designed to be succinct They had to be concise, they had to be accurate, and they had to encapsulate all of the basic ideas that he had just learned that minute in a proper legal form uh, so as to give his clients some possibility of success. That whole process of distilling things down, of pondering them deeply, of starting with good material, uh, I believe somehow uh, with Lincoln's mind, tendency, and aptitudes uh, produced uh, the unique writing style and the terseness that he exhibits. Of
1: course he didn't write like a lawyer, instead he wrote beautifully. <laughs>
0: right? I've just have never editorial. seen Tim Hopkins' briefs. <laughs> that's right,
1: that's right. Uh, you know, uh, as you well know, no I haven't as a matter of fact. <laughs> as, as, as you well know, uh, Lincoln uh, told everybody that he read aloud because he could then absorb his reading materials with two senses. His ears could hear it, his eyes would see it. Uh, some have speculated that he learned to write for the ear, and that helps to explain the magisterial nature of his writings. So have you tried reading aloud to, in, in your research, to see if you could, if you could uh, imitate Lincoln in that regard?
0: No, but I think, uh, as we did tonight, uh, playing with the words and the cadence and the phraseology of Lincoln is, is almost more fun than reading it, and, and it is indeed for the ear, uh, most often. Uh, We're not over at the uh, movie theater uh, uh, with all that rush of imagery and audio. And when you conceive that Lincoln and the other orators of the day, even so late as uh, Chauncey Depew and William Jennings Bryan, played with words uh, to an audience that was focused on words, uh, it is indeed uh, uh, an ear-centric medium uh, that plays best in that way. Now, uh, as, as you know, many,
1: many Americans considered Lincoln to be the greatest of all presidents. And of course, many want to invoke the majesty of his name and some of his words and some of his writings to be applied to contemporary problems. So bringing, again, your crystal ball to bear, what do you suppose a president like Lincoln, who greatly expanded executive power during the Civil War, might have said about the Patriot Act and also, what might he have said about the Edward Snowden affair, the great controversy on the front pages of our uh, papers these
0: days? Now, Dave, you're, you're an expert on Lincoln and the Constitution and the Constitution generally. And Lincoln, of course, had some novel constitutional questions where some scholars debating even to this day contend he breached the Constitution or he stretched the Constitution. And as you say, it's eminently fair to say that he expanded the presidential role Uh, under the Constitution. But in all of those actions, Lincoln was first knowledgeable about the Constitution, and he respected the Constitution. He he occasionally would say in the the contest between constitutional provisions, should I uh, ignore uh, one constitutional provision and adopt another and yet lose the entire nation in the Constitution? So he was aware and balancing. I'm concerned uh, that uh, in this day, whether it's the Congress that has a constitutional role or the president that has constitutional uh, barriers, uh, that nobody in the national government is nearly as aware as they should be of what focus they ought to have and what role they ought to have. Uh, you, you've spoken most eloquently, Dave, about uh, the troubles with Congress not standing up and defending their province under the Constitution. And all of these all of these things, uh, the, the uh, Snowden events, uh, We've lost the morality of of taking our constitutional oath and complying with it, Uh, the the imagery of uh, new technology and how that relates to the Constitution. All of those questions were unanticipated. And what we need to do is reinstall in our national government people with a constitutional sensitivity. Uh, We need to have the Congress more concisely define uh, what is legitimate and what is not legitimate uh, for a modern technology. And we need to jealously guard uh, individual rights and the content uh, of privacy while at the same time acknowledging that new technology in non-content areas can gather, must gather, must protect us in some ways uh, from these uh, these terror threats. But uh, striking that balance will not be possible and we will lose the Constitution unless we have leaders who respect it and who will enforce it and will uh, be moral in their choices in so doing. Uh, I'm distressed and I think Lincoln would be too.
1: That's, they're here, they're here. That, uh, don't you think that sounds like a fine campaign platform for a new party, for a new party? <laughs> now, we're just about at the end of our time, Dave, but uh, a couple of people have wondered, uh, given your dedication uh, to Lincoln as a, as a scholar, a lifelong uh, love affair with Lincoln and his presidency and his career, Could you tell us a handful of things that you admire most about Abraham Lincoln? Sure.
0: Well, you don't have to go uh, very far down your hand to appreciate that Lincoln was uh, absolutely the salt of the earth human being and respected that in other people. You know, he was such an odd duck. I painted a picture for you of him appearing in front of the the dandified New Yorkers uh, with the important people on the platform and his... Horribly odd, Mr. Cheerman accent. Uh, Lincoln was always an outlier. He was not just an outlier in New York. He was an odd duck uh, even in New Salem, Illinois, as he first rolled into town with uh, pants so short that they were up uh, halfway uh, uh, his calves. Uh, An odd-looking fellow, an odd-speaking fellow, different than the rest. Reading books instead of uh, uh, doing uh, more manly sports uh, all of the time, and that. Being an outcast of sorts and learning from his own experience uh, how to refine himself, how to integrate uh, himself into society, how to intrigue others with his possibilities of leadership uh, was an important part of his evolution. But the beautiful thing about Lincoln is during all of that period, he never lost his touch with common people. And uh, perhaps a third of his day, even at the height of the Civil War, was taking up with Individual um, widows and orphans and uh, office seekers who wanted some advantage of him, often uh, when he could, van- could grant no such advantage. But he took the time to listen to human beings and he learned from human beings and he, he was empathetic with human beings. You know, that characteristic above all is Lincoln and was Lincoln and it's why we react to Lincoln today, in my opinion.
1: Thank you, this has been the most memorable speech ever yet presented to the City Club. Thanks very much for joining us. Let's give her a nice round of applause. And you now get the City Club coffee. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you on August 23rd when we host Senator Jim Risch for our next edition of Question Hour, 60 minutes of direct questions from a, marauder, uh, from a moderator uh, to the senator. Don't miss this. Take care. This is KISU-FM Pocatello. Beat City Radio is next. The Idaho Falls City Club on KISU is supported by the Idaho Humanities Council, promoting good citizenship through civil discourse, civic engagement, and reflection on the public good. More information is online at idahohumanities.org.